Well, I have to say that for Margaret and I, we feel very much at home with Brother Chamberlain and his wife Susan and all of you folks. I was thinking of this verse that John mentioned, or that uh, comes in the first chapter of John's epistle, and I'll not read the whole verse to you, but I'll read this part, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Friendships are very dear. They're things that the Lord has given us in this life as we go through so many different trials and difficulties. Of course, the Lord's presence is most important, but He gives us friendships to help one another out. And you know, pastors need the friendship of other pastors. We need that very much. So we are thankful for these friendships that God gives. I want to call your attention today to Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is one of several songs of the servant. It's sometimes called. They're really psalms. They don't cover the whole of the chapter each time. But this is the first in several towards the end of the book of Isaiah. Some will say there are four. Others will say there are five different songs of the servant. But uh, there, I would say there's probably four main ones. Chapter 61 of Isaiah is sometimes listed also as a song of the servant. So we're going to read the first part of this chapter beginning at verse 1. And just think of the words here. Truly is amazing. The Word of God. What God has to say about His servant. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flag shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth bread unto the people upon it and and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant to the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes, the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And we end the reading of God's Word by noticing verse 10. And what a verse it is after the proclamation that God makes here, the revelation that He makes. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and His praise from the end of the earth, Ye that go down to the sea, 
and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let's bow our heads in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that God's Word would be very precious to us here. We pray that the marvel of what God is showing in this portion, things which are better understood in this day, we pray this marvel would not leave us. Help us to not become so accustomed to the message of the Word of God and that of the Gospel that we just say in our heart and mind, here it is again, but rather open our hearts to this wonderful truth. We pray that we would recognize not only what God has given in His dear Son, but what we have a portion of as we would be in Christ in union with Him. Be with us here. We recognize this is nothing more than just an empty word if we have not the Spirit of God to be with us and to help us. We pray that we would lay hold upon such a marvelous truth. Give us words to speak. Give us liberty to speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These four or five songs of the servant, or we could call them poems of the servant, are not so well known necessarily, except chapter 53 is the most well known, where we read of the suffering servant. But today I want to look at this 42nd chapter with you, because it is so revealing of what God said about his servant, and think of him calling his own son my servant. We'll say more about that, but consider also as Isaiah would give this prophecy, and he he wrote these words, can't you see that he would be feeling, as Peter put it in his epistle, whenever he spoke about those Old Testament prophets, and he said this, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should come. How much did Isaiah even understand here? He understood some, certainly he would have. But there had to be parts of it he wondered What is this? What all does it mean? When will he come? Who is it exactly? This one that God says, my servant. It is interesting to note that given to Isaiah were, or was the name Cyrus that comes at the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45. And this man Cyrus would come many years later. He was the one, of course, that would allow the Jews to return back to their homeland. And there he would speak of this man, Cyrus. But here, there's no name given. God says it's my servant. How much did he understand? I'm not sure. But I would have to say that no doubt he looked upon it and he saw things almost like it's described sometimes like, seeing the sun come over the horizon, only seeing a part of it, not understanding it fully by any means. Now, when we come to the New Testament, and we'll be referring to this in a little bit, it became very clear by the words of our Lord and His apostles that they recognized 
This is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt about it. We'll be pointing that out in just a few minutes. But they understood this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. As we look into this poem or this portion that we have before us this morning, we want to learn of what God says about His servant, His Son. And in some of the other songs, sometimes He's addressed a little differently. There's even times that the servant himself makes a statement about himself. But this time in chapter 42, God is speaking about His servant. In all of the New or the Old Testament, we ought to recognize that it points towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a man that came to our church for a time, and he was talking to me one day, and he said, I read the Old Testament, but it doesn't make sense. Why didn't it make sense? You see, the key to the Old Testament is Christ. If you don't have that key, you won't understand it. So he said, I have to read the Proverbs, and that makes sense to me. I'm afraid he didn't really see too deeply into it if he didn't see Christ in the rest of the Old Testament. Do you recall how Christ said to those in his generation that if they would search the Scriptures, they would understand of who he was? Let me just remind you of that verse in chapter 5 of John, verse 39. Because here he says, search the Scriptures. That would be what we call the Old Testament. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. This is how you're going to learn of who I am. This is how you're going to learn of the one that should come. Well, they didn't recognize him, and so they rejected him. But as Isaiah gives this prophecy, let us remember this. And we won't spend time upon this other than to just make mention of it. In the chapters earlier in this prophecy of Isaiah, he has been telling of the judgment, the doom that would fall upon Israel. It was a message that these prophets sorrowed in. This was people that they loved. It was their own people. But it was the truth they gave. But when we come to chapter 40, we begin to see that a message comes, you know how this chapter goes, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith God. So suddenly the Spirit of God revealed to Isaiah that there was something else that would come through his prophecy, through his message, and that was that there was a future. There was something here that would come that was wonderful that God would send. I mentioned to you just a moment ago that in chapter 44 and chapter 45, Cyrus is mentioned. Cyrus was an instrument that God used, a human instrument. He was used much of God, but his work or the use that God made of him as an instrument was more on the political sense or the physical deliverance that would come to the Jews. He allowed the Jews to return back to their land if they so desired. Now that's the kind of deliverance that man tends to look for. The Jews in Jesus' day still look for that kind of deliverance. They saw no need of anything deeper than that. But that kind of deliverance was only on the surface. Yes, they would enjoy their liberty if they would be allowed to go back, but they had a much deeper need than that. 
And that deeper need, which was spiritual, it was in the soul, that deeper need is what caused the other need to come up, the physical need. They went into captivity because of the spiritual need. So Cyrus might be used of God. The Jews, in part, might return back to the land. But at that point, nothing was done for their heart yet. They were still in sin. But when we come here to chapter 42 and verse 1, God is revealing His servant, Behold, my servant. Now there's a series of beholds that come earlier in the chapter just before this. And those beholds have to do with recognizing the sin in the land. Things more along the line of, Behold, the idolaters. Behold the emptiness of the Israelites here. You notice verse 28, for instance, of, of Isaiah 41. For behold, I beheld, and there was no man even among them, and there was no counselor when I asked of them. And, and then verse 29, Behold, they are all vanity. That's what he had to say about them. Behold. But suddenly we come to chapter 42. Behold my servant. This is a call of attention. It's saying, take a good look. There is someone here of great importance. And I trust that by God's help and grace today, we might behold Him yet today. We need to. It does require the eye of faith directed towards the Savior to recognize Him for what He is. Now, let's go over to Matthew's uh, Gospel here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. And here we have some of these verses that are quoted from Isaiah 42. Matthew 12, verse 14. And we're starting just a verse or two before the quotation comes from the Old Testament. But it helps pick up the thought. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against Him, how they might destroy Him. But when Jesus knew it, He withdrew Himself from thence, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. And then Matthew gives the reason why. And the reason was that the word of God might be fulfilled. That prophecy given many years before, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will pour my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment. And here is a there's several little differences in the way it's recorded here in Matthew. Unto victory, it says. And in His name shall the Gentiles trust. So there's no question who this servant is. It is said point blank there in Matthew chapter 12, it is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'd say, especially referring to His human nature that was in union with His divine nature as He came in His incarnation. So we have, coming back here to Isaiah 42, Behold my servant. In chapter 40, verse 9, there it says, Behold your God. I'll read that verse to you. 
O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee into the high, uh, high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. But we come to our chapter and it says, Not behold your God. It says, Behold my servant, though it's speaking of the same person. This is something I hope that you keep in mind, you keep with you as you leave from this morning. The same person is spoken of as, Behold your God and behold my servant. He came, he humbled himself, he gave of himself. He came to serve, he came to give his life a ransom for many. Notice what the Lord God does in calling attention to his servant. Notice what he has to say about him and what he says he'll do for him. As we take it just step by step through the verse, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Remember now, this is especially referring to his human nature whenever he speaks of his servant. And God says, This servant is the one whom I uphold. In other words, God would sustain him. He promises to support him whenever he would come. And he did come and was supported of the Father. When he came in his human nature, he came with all of the weakness that we have except, of course, sin. But he knew what it was to be weary, to be hungry, to be in need of rest. He knew all of these different things that we know. And God said, Behold my servant whom I uphold. In John 16.32, Behold the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And you would think, since this is what would happen with man, he might say, and I'll be scattered too. But God had promised, I uphold him, I will uphold him. And the Lord Jesus says, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Yes, He did uphold Him. It's quite interesting when you think of Christ being God the Son, and God the Father said, I'll uphold God the Son. Of course, as we're saying, it is His human nature especially being referred to, but you have the divine nature upholding the human nature. Now, this is a marvel to think of how he came to this earth. He stooped so low, and yet God said, I will uphold him. Why did he do that? Christ didn't need to come for himself. He came for you and me. He came that sinners might be saved. But then we move on to the next statement that God said about his servant. He calls him mine elect or my chosen, the one that I have chosen. This is meant in a very special way, a very special sense. Every child of God is chosen of God, is an elect one of God. But he is said to be mine elect, and it is in a very special way. Let me remind you of what Peter had to say over here in his epistle when he wrote about the Savior. And he put it this way in First Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, well-known verses to us. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, men 
rejected him, did, uh, did not allow him, but chosen of God and precious. And I, I always think about the way it goes on here because he says, ye also. These things we read about Christ, every child of God, they're included in these promises as they are in Christ. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, again it says, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. That's a promise for all of us if we will but truly believe, savingly believe upon the Savior. So God says, this is mine elect. The next thing he says, in whom my soul delighteth. You know, as we are humans and we study the Word of God, there are certain statements that stick in the mind. And this one for me is the one that it's just been in my mind. It, I've turned it over and over. The one that God delights in. In fact, it says His soul delights in this one. And again, I couldn't help but think the marvel of Him saying this about the Savior that would come. Coming in incarnation. In other words, the divine nature and the human nature and the joining of the two as He came. And he says, my soul delighteth in him. You know, if he is our representative, which he is, if he is our mediator and God does not delight in him, woe is us. We're in trouble. But God says, I delight in him. There is a special, a great delight and joy and acceptance in this one. In that portion we read there in Matthew 12, he said, in whom my soul is well pleased, whereas our portion soul that his soul, it says his soul delighted in him. So just a little difference in wording, though the meaning is not different. So the father was well pleased in his son, God the son. Since our salvation depends upon him, is this not a glorious doctrine and teaching from the word of God? To read that he delights in the one that came for us, if he said he did not delight in him, there's no salvation for us. You know, this statement was repeated a couple times. In Matthew chapter 3 and the 16th verse, whenever Jesus was baptized of John the Baptist, the heavens were opened of all things. And the Father said, This is my beloved Son. The Spirit of God descended upon him in the appearance of a dove. And that voice spoke, from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. One of the writers I read said some things that just made me pause and think about it. For he spoke of how our Lord, you know, He was born as a babe. He developed as any one of us developed physically. As I said before, He was without sin, of course. But along the way, he still learned and developed much as we do. Somewhere along the way, he began to be taught of the Word of God. Somewhere he learned these portions in the Old Testament. 
And we're not really told much about any of that, but we can tell by his quoting of it and his mentioning of what we call the Old Testament Scripture, as they would have called it. He came to understand, this is me. I fulfill this. Can you even fathom the thrill in his heart when he recognized, this is me? I am the fulfillment of this thing? And then we bring it down to our own level. In Christ, these things are true about us. As God delights in the Son, so He delights in those that are in the Son. Do you have that? Does God say that about you? Are you in Christ? If you are not in Christ, it is not said that God delights in you. And so we must be in Christ. Now another time this was said was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And it is repeated there in Matthew 17, verse 5. But we move on to the next statement that is made in the first verse. God says, I have put my Spirit upon him. Well, the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit, was greatly involved in everything about Jesus from beginning to end as far as his earthly life was involved. I read to you from Isaiah 11. In the first few verses, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's the severe side. The other part was telling of some of the the, uh, goodness of God, the goodness versus the severity. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So we have him anointed or filled with the Holy Spirit. And as I said, that goes all through life. I'll mention just very briefly and quickly some of these things we see. His very conception and birth, it involved the work of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit was involved in it. In his childhood days, his development is said to be according to the Holy Spirit. He grew in grace and in the Spirit. Of course, at his baptism, as we just mentioned, he was anointed for his priestly service. In chapter 4 of Matthew, he was tempted of the devil. But it clearly says he was even led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. There he would suffer at the hand of Satan, he would be tempted in that way. But he was also upheld by the Holy Spirit during that 40 days and 40 nights. In Acts chapter 10, and I want to read this verse to you because Peter is speaking there to Cornelius and the people that were in his home. And he makes this statement, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That's what Peter said to those people as he preached the message of the gospel to them. 
the Holy Spirit was also involved in the death, the resurrection, and also the ascension of our Lord. I won't take time to read that with you here this morning. So He is the special delight of the Father. As God delights in Him, He gave Him, He gifted Him the Holy Spirit, even in His ascension it makes mention of that. And here we come to think today of how in union with Christ, God has poured all of this out as a gift unto Him. But then there is a statement made at the end of verse 1, and it says, He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Again at the end of verse 3, He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. And then verse 4, He shall not fail nor be discouraged till He have set judgment in the earth. Three times judgment is mentioned. Rather noteworthy how that is said in that order. Judgment, we often think of judgment as something that has to do with punishment, and it certainly carries that idea. But very often in Scripture, and I think this is one of the cases, it doesn't mean punishment only. I'm not taking away from the fact it can mean that and it can be used in that way, but there is a thought behind it of he establishes justice. Some of that work is judgment on the wicked, it's true. But that's not the only work. In fact, we know from Scripture that judgment is his strange work. It was a work that he didn't have to do except the fall of man happened. But this is really speaking of the reign, the rule of Christ. And oh, we look forward to this day, especially in the the day that we live in with all of the corruption in men ruling. So it is speaking of his reign his rule it's not a reign of terror unless i guess you're of the of the lost and the wicked that would be true but it's especially speaking of how he'll reign in justice there was another thing that i came across in looking at this that i found very interesting there was one that described this and i had never heard it put in terms quite like this but he said the court of law that we have in our land will try and bring justice. And they'll say justice has been served in such and such a crime. And he said they do the best they can if there's not corruption, but they can never really serve justice. In other words, they may catch the criminal, they may punish the criminal, but what about the crimes the criminal committed? What if the criminal stole things and they can never be retrieved? Or what if a murder happened? The judge cannot bring the the deceased back to life. That person is lost. So in that judgment or justice being served, there is not full justice. Man can never bring full justice because man is limited in that way. It doesn't matter if the court is, is not even corrupt. They're doing the best they can it still is true that can only go so far. But not so with our Savior, with our servant that is being spoken of here. He will bring forth judgment. I like to say justice. He will have this reign of justice. And it begins to mention the Gentiles. And it it also brings in the isles in verse 4. And it's mentioned later on, the isles again. Those are people that are far off from the Jews. The Jews were the people they thought, we are the only 
children of God, the only people of God, but the Gentiles are being brought into. I don't know if all of you are Gentiles. I presume that you probably are. But this brings us into the picture of salvation, of redemption. So his exercise of government and of rule is one that is completely upright. There is nothing corrupt about him. He does not destroy. Oh, he will destroy the wicked. That's true. But he does not destroy his own. Rather, he reigns over them, rules over them as a king. So this is truly a paradox because we have one that is a king. We have one that is Lord. He is the master. And yet here we are reading of him as the servant. The servant that would serve and give himself. And this is how he will establish justice in this fallen world. Now as we come to verse 2, we begin to see some of the characteristics of the servant as he would come to this earth. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. You know what man is like whenever they want to exalt themselves. They have all of the noise, the upheaval around them, the uprising. I thought of the two sons of David that tried to exalt themselves. What did they do? They had 50 men run before them. They proclaimed. They blew the trumpet. They threw a feast. They did all these different things. But along the line, isn't there an irony in it? They're over there feasting. But David finally anointed his son Solomon, that is a type of Christ. News came to them. And I'll tell you, the party they were having began to blow apart. People couldn't get away from that soon enough. Our Savior came, and He made no noise. There was no uprising. There was no rioting. The earthly government that was in charge then, in control then, it continued on. His rule, His reign was not of that sort. There is one exception to some extent, not not that He was uh, out of line, but in His entering into Jerusalem, often called the triumphal entry, he did present himself. That's one exception. But that's not the way he came as he would serve upon this earth. He didn't come crying. He didn't come lifting up the voice. His character was one of quietness. He came in a very beautiful and becoming way. Nor did he bark out orders unto all those that were under him. No, he came and he taught, he instructed. Matthew twelve nineteen, as it quotes from this, it says, He shall not strive nor cry. In other words, he didn't come to raise a ruckus. He didn't uh, cause trouble and a wrangling around him or dispute with others. He came with great humility. In fact, he said of himself that he was meek and lowly. He also said in Luke 17.20 that the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, not this great outward show. That's not how He would come. How often did He say to someone that was healed of infirmity not to go and tell others or to just go and live quietly? Why was that? His hour was not yet come. He lived quietly. When He came to the cross... 
Did he utter a complaint? No, he fulfilled Scripture. He went like sheep, without a murmur, without a complaint. He was quiet. Peter said when he was reviled, he reviled not again. In verse 3, we begin to see the gentleness of the servant. And this is actually what brought me to the portion, this uh, portion we're looking at today, because you read of this bruised reed and smoking flax. Oh, I remember as a child hearing this verse read, and I thought, what does that mean? I couldn't understand it. But sometimes those things that are a little more difficult to understand do have the greatest meaning. This verse really shows us the gentleness of the servant of God. He came to reign. He came to bring forth judgment or justice. But he is not destructive. These are two different pictures you have, two different illustrations, a bruised reed. Now, a reed is something that is it's uh, quite flexible and bendable, but it can be broken. And this bruising is whenever it, it breaks, it is cracked, but it's still holding together, you might say by a thread. You know, up in our area, when the storms come this time of year, and our corn is standing very high, that corn is sometimes in the range of nine foot tall. All the farmers are concerned. It can snap that corn and the crop is lost. And I thought of that as I read this bruised reed. What would bruise a reed? What would bruise mankind? What would bruise us? Well, there's all kinds of storms, troubles, temptations, any number of things. It can be things along the line of adversities, difficulties we go through. Some people it may be along the line of fears and doubts. I thought that was interesting when I considered it because one of the things said about those that would enter heaven are those that are not fearful. One of those things said about those shut out are the fearful, the unbelieving. So a bruised reed. And what's it say about the bruised reed? What would man do with a bruised reed? What does man do if he comes to someone that he feels superior over them? He goes ahead and finishes him off, breaks him. He says, I have dominance over you. Bruised reed, I'll break you all the way. That's what man is like. I'm speaking of man, of course, in their natural state, their sinful state. And the second the thing that is said here is smoking flax, which you might best understand that as the wick of a candle. Some say a dimly lit candle, a smoking flax. So here you have a candle that has just been lit. And it might be best even to picture this as a man that needs the candle, needs warmth so bad. Someone perhaps caught out in the cold and this is absolutely life or death. What's that man going to do when he tries to light that little wick? He's going to cup it with his hands. He's going to try and light it, do all that he can to protect it. And that's really the picture you have here of our Savior, the gentleness of our Savior, a bruised reed. Will he not break? Now, that doesn't just mean that he won't break it off. It also means and implies he will strengthen it. Much as the idea you have back here of the Father saying He would uphold the Son, He will strengthen us. He will uphold us. Consider how pitiful He was and how compassionate He was towards the sinners. What was He like to them? 
He would speak to that woman caught in sin and say, go and sin no more. Now to the Pharisees, he spoke very sharp words. That's true. But to those that were bruised reeds, in other words, they understood. It was clear what they were like. The Pharisees couldn't see themselves. I think of the way that the Apostle Paul carried on, and the other apostles would have carried this on also. Paul said to the Corinthians, I beseech thee by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's the way he approached them. We do well to treat one another this way. There's a time and a place where we must stand, and we must stand very strongly sometimes. But there are times that we ought to be as Christ has been with us. So he felt very compassionate. He was mild toward the weak. Remember in Hebrews, he is described as being harmless. That's one of the terms used about him. So we have this this uh, illustration, two illustrations, a bruised reed and smoking flax. Well, let me say this to you as we come near to the end of this message. In our Savior or in a Savior, we need, first of all, we need one that is strong enough, mighty enough to save. If we do not have one that has the capability of saving, all of the compassion and pity in the world would do nothing. But if he were only strong and not gentle, didn't pity us, he wouldn't help us, he would destroy us. But we have both sides, and this is in one that is the Lord of glory himself. And so he was very gentle. I want you to turn with me over to Luke chapter 9, verse 52. Luke 9, verse 52. This is a a story or a part of the story where the two sons of Zebedee, sometimes called the sons of thunder, wanted to call down fire upon the villages of, of the Samaritans. Luke 9, 52. Luke 9, verse 52. And sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. There was this running conflict between the Samaritans and, the, and those of Jerusalem, the Jews. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. He was gracious, though Those Samaritans were very unworthy. But oh, if this doesn't describe what we are like. We are very bruised reeds. One writer said, damaged goods. I thought that's a good description for what we are in our flesh. But will he accomplish what he came for? Will it come to pass? Coming back to our portion here in Isaiah 42, verse 4, He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. He is going to accomplish. These are interesting words that are used here because in verse 3 we have the bruising and the smoking flax. 
And the same words are used here. They're actually in reverse order. So the bruised part is the discouraged. The smoking flax would be the failing. He shall not fail. You might say it this way. He won't come and be extinguished or to burn out and and to fail to come to pass. It will come to pass what He came to do. God's plan of redemption is going to come to pass. So He is strong enough. He is unfailing. He is mighty to save. But He came and He identified with us. Those that are fallen, broken, fragile. We are humanity. And in death, it appeared that He did fail. In fact, if you were ever going to speak of this smoking and failing, this being extinguished, men thought for sure they had ended the matter once they put Him to death. But it was in death, it was through death, that He fulfilled what He needed to fulfill, what He came for. So He shall not fail nor be discouraged till He have set judgment in the earth. Everything that God sent Him for, every purpose that God had for Him, He completed that and He will complete it, though He does not reign physically upon this earth yet. He does reign in the hearts of His people. This is good news for every one of us. If man does not recognize their own sinfulness, their own weakness, this Word has no message for them. It has nothing for them. So I ask you this morning, do you recognize what you are before God? Or do you think you are whole, needing no physician? Do you see yourself as a strong reed, or even stronger than even a reed? Or do you say, yes, I am a bruised reed? You know, even children of God that are already saved recognize their weakness. If we don't, we are in a lot of trouble. God will show to us that we have many weaknesses. And I am thankful it says it that way because it's not only in salvation, but He keeps us throughout life. If we didn't have that, we would certainly fall and fail. We would go astray. So He will not fail nor be discouraged till He have set judgment in the earth. And the isles shall wait for His law or His, His teachings and His principles to come to them. Those that are afar off. And as I considered this, I thought, here is this servant. God says, behold, my servant. But the servant is much more than the servant. Yes, he came to be a servant. We marvel at that. We should always praise his name for that. But he is Lord of all. And by his coming, he has been exalted. His name is set above every other name. All things will be put under His feet, though He came as a servant. In His second coming, He will return victorious and glorious, and we will live under that reign. We ought to praise God for that. As we come to a close, we must ask you the question, have you submitted to Christ? Are you in His kingdom? Does He reign over you now? That is, reigning in grace over you. Because the Bible tells us that every knee will bow. Even if you won't today, every knee shall bow. If you are forced to bow against your will, 
it'll be unto your destruction, eternal destruction. But if you bow now by the grace of God and accept Him as your Savior, all of this wonder and this marvel that we've been reading of, God's saying, Behold, it's like, open your eyes. God must open our eyes to Him. Have you seen Him for what He is? He is our glorious Savior. I am thankful the Lord has revealed this about Him, and we can, so many, many years later, take heart in what is said about Him. Now let's bow our heads in closing. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for such a Savior coming as a servant. Though we are so unworthy, sinners and lost, we should have been just cast off by God. We deserved every bit of it. But He says, Behold my servant, the servant of God. And we pray that this servant of Jehovah would thrill our souls and that we would trust in Him not only in salvation, certainly there, but every day we live we need to trust in Him, trusting in Him more all the time. Help us each to look away from self and look away from man and even all of the conditions upon this earth. We know there are many things that can upset us. Help us to look in this way to the one that will rule over all of this earth someday. What a glorious thought that is. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.